Go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. We're in a series in the book of Matthew, and uh, uh, this morning I want to look at the, the topic of repentance and what that all involves. Uh, because last week, as we found out in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, we looked at uh, who John the Baptist was, and we looked at his message and we talked a little bit about how it was a simple message. It was pretty straightforward. He wasn't there to tickle anybody's ears or make anybody feel good. Um, and uh, he was really a fulfillment of the, the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And that's what John's purpose was, to prepare the way of the Lord. And he wasn't there for his own glory. He was there to prepare for the glory that was yet to come. And that all in and of itself is a message that we could take to heart. That We have to remember that when, even though we're left here on earth, um, we're not here for our own glory. We're here for the glory of God. Amen? And every day, that's the way we should live our lives. Not trying to seek our own glory and have people look at us, but we should be a reflection of God's glory. And um, John was baptizing people, which we figured out wasn't that uncommon back then. A lot of times when <clears throat> somebody would cross over from their pagan background, a Gentile, and want to become uh, part of the nation of Israel, Jewish and religion, they would baptize them. And that signified the leaving behind of everything that they knew prior to that and uh, embracing everything that was of their new faith. And that's one thing that we practice today. We practice believers' baptism. A baptism that's immersed by immersion in water, and it signifies, it's really the first act of obedience in a believer's life, that signifies that you've changed, that you've been transformed. And in the New Testament, they did it very publicly. They used to go out on the beach or wherever they could find water, and they would baptize believers and probably give a testimony, whatever, and uh, even probably saw people come to Christ as a result of that. Today we have baptismals in the church, so it's nice and warm and everything, and you're with your church family and all that, and that's great. But uh, that's, that's one thing that to be, be prayerful about, that we want to follow Jesus through the waters of baptism. We're going to look at next week how Jesus himself was baptized. But here in verses 7 to 12, I just want to read them for us and uh, kind of look at what the heart of this, this little passage here is. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees, this is John the Baptist, he was baptizing people, and he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, now look at what he says, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me, speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff which un with unquenchable fire. Now Matthew records one kind of version, you might say, of the preaching style of John the Baptist. And there's actually 
a similar, if you turn over to the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, there's actually a similar text that gives us a little insight as far as the ministry of John the Baptist. And if you take time to read through that, you'll see that he actually talks about fruits of repentance. Just pick up in verse uh, 7 there. It says in Luke 3, he says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. Notice, many people. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But it goes a little further. Look at what happens. The people asked him, saying, Well, what shall we do then? They wanted to know. Well, what are you saying to us, John? And he answered them in verse 11, And he said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to them, And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do, Lord? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their heart about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered and said to them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he goes on, and basically it's the same as what we read in Matthew. But you see there, he gives examples of the fruit of repentance. Because sometimes we hear about repentance, and we get a, a kind of a, a mixed idea of what it's talking about. John's preaching was pretty simple. It was very simplistic. His message was limited to what was the essential. He didn't give you a lot of fluff. There wasn't a lot of illustrations. But he fulfilled his calling to be God's spokesman, spokesman and heralder for the Messiah. He performed his ministry, you might say, with boldness. He wasn't uh, afraid to stand up and declare these things. As a matter of fact, we looked at last week how Jesus said that um, among all those born of women... There's not a risen one greater than John the Baptist. So up to that point, he was the greatest person who basically lived besides the Messiah. Well, if you look at verse 7, it starts off there kind of giving us a little description back in Matthew 3 of who this audience was. Now, remember, people came from all over. If you read back in the text there a little bit, I mean, the ministry of John the Baptist, it says that they came... Um, from, from all over the place. Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him, in verse 5 it says. So he had a good, big crowd of people there. And within that crowd, like any crowd, it's a mixed bag of things. Not everybody were there just with pure motives. Just like here this morning, may, everybody may not be here with pure motives. We don't know. Only God knows your heart. But he gives us a description of his audience there, and it says that there were many Pharisees and Sadducees. And John realized that because of the religious 
garb that they had on. They, you could tell they stand out in a crowd. Now, back in those days, just to give you a little background of the culture, as far as the religions of the day, in, in, in the area of the Jewish faith, there were a lot of different sects. Three main ones. First of all, there was a little-known sect known as the Essenes. And they were very exclusive people. Most of them were unmarried. They often adopted children from other Jewish families. But, you know, we heard about when they discovered the, uh, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community. Well, that's where the Essenes lived. They were kind of away from everything else. Um, they were isolated. They were exclusive. And they spent their time mainly copying scriptures. That's what they would do. Manuscript after manuscript. And really, we owe them the debt of finding the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, who was, which was discovered by a shepherd boy in 1947. But they had little influence from outside society. They just kind of kept to themselves. And just to let you know, they're not mentioned in the New Testament anywhere. The second group is that group that's mentioned here. John mentions them in verse 7. He says, saw many of the Pharisees. And they were like the opposite of the Essenes. <laughs> they, were, they were just more exclusive than, than them, but they, they wanted all the attention focused on them. They were found in a lot of large cities of that day. They weren't isolated from people. However, they considered themselves to be separate from everybody. Um, they were much in the mainstream of everyday Jewish life, you might say. And they made a point about being noticed. So they were easy to pick out in the crowd. It's, it's like today sometimes, I remember, I don't know what hospital it was, but I went down to visit uh, someone in the hospital and basically, I mean, almost had an argument with the nurse whether or not I was a pastor. Because she said, well, who are you? I said, well, I'm a pastor. She said, we don't have a collar on. I said, well, no, I don't wear a collar. You know, and belong to an independent Bible church. We don't wear collars. Well, you're not a pastor then. Because she associated wearing this collar with being a pastor. I almost wanted to go into the, into the, the restroom and take a paper towel and fold it and wrap it around my neck and go back and say, there, you know. But that's what she was looking at. She was looking at the garb that someone would come. And she just, you know, I mean, I was dressed in slacks and a shirt and probably a tie. But she, I had to show her my business card and everything. She still didn't believe me. I mean, it was amazing. So finally we went in to see the patient and, you know, oh yeah, yeah, he is my pastor. I mean, it was just kind of crazy. But some people put a lot of emphasis on the outside. And Jesus exposed the, the Pharisees. You remember over in Matthew 23, verses 5 to 7 and in other places, he basically says this, all their deeds to be noticed by men and they love the place of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respective greetings in the marketplaces, and being called by men rabbi, that's what they thrived. That'd be like me saying, hey, you know, um, you come up to me and say, hey, Steve, after, oh, wait, wait, it's, it's Pastor Steve to you. See, I, I don't like that. I mean, I know some of you call me Pastor Steve, but, but, you know, my name's Steve. And I understand that God's put a calling on my life, and I understand all that. And if you feel comfortable calling me that, that's fine. But that's not something that, you know, gee, I want to go in ministry so everybody can call me pastor. 
You know, it's just it's hilarious. I went down the other day, yesterday, to visit, or Friday, to visit someone in, in Stanford, a pastor who was kind of instrumental in, in my life early on. When I first came to know Christ, he was pastoring uh, Community Baptist Church in Mentorsville, Pennsylvania. His name's Charles Westgate. And I went down to visit him at Stanford. My brother called me from back east and said, hey, did you know Pastor Westgate's in Stanford University, or the hospital there? And I said, no, I had no idea. Because we'd been there for two weeks. He just had a heart transplant. I'm going, wow, that's pretty intense. So, you know, it was, he was in the ICU, and I went down there and, and uh, called to see if he was there. He was still there. And, and I went up to the lady at the uh, visiting place there, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'd like to see uh, Charles Westgate. And she goes, okay, well, the visiting hours start at 4 o'clock, and it was 3.15. See, and if you ever go to Stanford, you know that you park your car for 45 minutes, then you begin to pay. So every time I go to Stanford, if you're in Stanford Hospital, it's going to be an under 45-minute visit for me, probably. So, you know, so I'm standing there, and I thought, oh, man, no way. I don't want to go move my car and deal with all, you know. And I said, well, you know, um, I'm a, a pastor, and I, I'd like to see if I could get in early. Can I go speak to the lady at the desk? And she said, oh, go, go ask. It's up to them. So, you know, I kind of used the pastor thing, and it got me in. They were actually doing a procedure on him, cutting his arm open and replacing, putting some stint in or something. But he was glad to, to see me. And so when I was standing there at the, the desk, I told the lady, well, I'm a pastor. And, and so she calls up his room and say, well, tell, you know, uh, Mr. Westgate that his pastor's here to see him. And I'm thinking, oh, man, that's not what I said. You know, this guy's like way older than me. In the Lord. So I walked in and I said, well, I guess I'm not your pastor, but I am a pastor. Does that count? You know, we shared a little bit and, and he's doing, I'd, I'd appreciate your prayers for him. Uh, he's still um, going through the recovery process, but he looked good and everything. But sometimes people separate people by the way that they look or by the title that's given to them. That was the Pharisees. They, they thrived on what people, you know, just looked at them and, oh, look at what they're wearing today. Look at that robe. Look at this. And I grew up in a religion that was very much that way, you know. Um, and you, you just have to be careful of that because it's not always about that. We don't really know where they gained, got their name from, Pharisees. But really, the, the word itself, Pharisee, means separated ones. And they were kind of diligent to live up to that name. They wanted to be separated from anybody. Not in a good sense. Now, the Bible says as Christians we should be separate, come out from the world, be separate. That's in a good sense. Okay, But that doesn't mean that you go build a monastery up on a mountain somewhere and don't have any contact with anybody. Because we're still called to be the light and the salt of the world. So when you got admit, admitted to this group, it was very strict control on that. Not everybody was allowed to be a Pharisee. That's why Paul says, as far as his faith, he was a Pharisee. That was a title of, of, of a respected title in a lot of ways. You had to earn it. it wasn't, they just didn't give them out. And they separated themselves not only from the Gentiles, but from tax collectors and anybody else known as sinners. See, that's why when Jesus came to this earth and he began to eat with sinners and, and, and talk to tax collectors, the Pharisees were blown away. They thought, this guy's the Messiah? Yeah, right. Look at what he's doing. But we're, not, we're not allowed to have contact with these people. And they really had an a attitude of just piousness about them. And so they formed this self-righteous, holy community within the community. And they were very legalistic in the way that they looked at the world and scriptures and the law and all that. And they had no regard or respect at all for anybody outside their little group. I've been in churches like that. You know, 
mentality of it's us for no more. You know, we stay right here and we, we bolster up the walls and, you know, separate from the world. Well, how in the world is a lost and dying world going to hear the message of the Savior if we don't go out into the world and share it with them? doesn't mean we have to be contaminated by the world when we do that. But I think we have to use creativity in our imagination sometimes to bring Christ into the marketplace. Well, these folks believed strongly in God's sovereignty and they even believed in divine destiny. And they alone were the true Israel. That's how they felt. They considered themselves to be super spiritual. But you might say their spirituality was based on what was on the external. On the meticulous observance of certain re religious rites and rituals and all this kind of stuff. You ever met somebody like that? You ever met somebody who's just purely legalistic about everything? See, legalism is basically when you get to the point where you have a preference and you're making that preference law, even though you can't really find anything to support your preference in Scripture. I know because I went to a legalistic college, Christian college, very legalistic. Couldn't have your hair over your ears, off, couldn't have it touching your collar, couldn't have any music with a beat. As a musician, I just laughed and said, every music has a beat, what are you talking about? But that was the rules. And, you know, it was very, you know, they had this handbook. I remember reading this handbook, and, and I didn't read it until I almost got kicked out. And Tim LaHaye sat me down and said, you better read the handbook, Steve. It might be to you some good. And he admitted, you know what, there's some rules that we have here. They have verses there. They really don't support what the, the rule is. But bottom line, Steve, this is our college. This is the way we feel God to run it. And, and if, if, if you want to go somewhere else, hey, that's great. There's a lot of other good schools. And for the first time, I began to realize, well, you know what? Sometimes there are rules that don't make any sense, but obviously, well-intentioned men had them there for a purpose. And I learned to, to follow the rules and was able to graduate by the grace of God. But see, by the time these Pharisees came in, and they, they were so religious and so pious and so set apart from everybody. And they thought somehow by strict adherence to all these traditions that they built up, that that would reward them in heaven. They were really the top of the rung as far as religious emptiness and hypocrisy. And Jesus pointed that out to them over and over and over again. In Matthew 23, 28, it says, the Pharisees outwardly appeared righteous to men, but inwardly they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. That was the first group. There's a second group, or a third group, the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. He just mentions the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. But the Sadducees. And on the other hand, the Sadducees were kind of on the other end of the religious spectrum. They were very liberal in what they believed. Um, they were just very open-minded about everything. They were known as compromisers. They wanted to kind of embrace everybody. They were the political correct group of the day. They didn't care a lot about Greek culture, but they were kind of, they looked up to it because of the philosophy and intellectualism that it had. And so they were attracted to the Greek culture. They were also attracted to the the, the Romans, because of their power, they were just kind of like, hey, it doesn't matter. As long as we get people on our side, it's okay. 
They claim to accept the law of Moses as the supreme and only religious authority, and yet so many times they just scorn the, the, the legalistic traditions of their Pharisees, of the Pharisees who really held a strict adherence to it. The Sadducees would sit back and say, ah, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. In the New Testament, at times they were closely related and associated with the priestly class of people. But they cared little for religion, especially doctrine. They didn't want to deal with that. They denied the existence of angels. They denied the resurrection. They denied most supernatural things. I remember in college somebody saying, well, the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was the Pharisees, they'd accept the resurrection. They didn't believe in the whole thing with Christ, but they'd accept it. But the Sadducees denied the resurrection. That's because that's why they were sad. You see, okay, kind of a silly thing, but I always stuck in my mind. The Sadducees deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any resurrection. And so the Sadducees were a lot smaller group than the Pharisees. And they were extremely wealthy. Um, and so they, they really, you know, they ran the whole money exchanging and stuff that went on in the temple of the day. And so when the Sadducees' business was threatened by Jesus... Well, they found something in common with the Pharisees. They both hated Christ. They both hated Christ. Religiously, politically, and socially, they had almost nothing in common, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were very ritualistic. The Sadducees were more rational in their thought. The Pharisees separated themselves from everybody. The Sadducees basically collaborated with anybody that would help them. Both groups had members along among the scribes and were represented in the priesthood in the Sanhedrin. Yet there were constant opposition to one another. And yet you notice there in the opening verses it says, And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, he makes them one group. In the original language, that's kind of looking at these two names with, with one title. He doesn't say there, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He lumps them all together because they're both, they're both falling short when it comes to what God desires. And they were coming to John for baptism and baptism meant that something had changed, that you were willing to make a change. And yet, you could see these Pharisees and Sadducees probably hearing of John's ministry and wondering, boy, is this guy a prophet? I don't know, you know, let's go check it out. Maybe he'll baptize us. Surely he'll baptize us. Look at us. We're cloaked in this and we're cloaked in that and we have this and that on our side. We have these, you know, things to our name. And so when they approached John, his message to them was rather mind-blowing. Both of these people were smug, self-righteous. And John pointed that out to him. Look at what he says to him. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, he, uh, he knew their hearts. He knew what it was all about. He wasn't naive. John's awareness, he was just pointing it out. He wasn't, he wasn't shy to share boldly here what, what he was seeing. He calls him a brood of vipers. 
That word brood can also mean offspring, <laughs> signifying descendants or children. And so he really kind of, Jesus used that several times when he talked about the Pharisees. And the vipers of that day were a very small but poisonous desert snake. And obviously, since John the Baptist was out in the wilderness a lot, he was probably familiar with these snakes. And a lot of times, these snakes would take on the, they would almost look like a branch. And if you weren't careful, you could step on one or reach out and possibly touch one and it would bite you. Like, that's probably what happened to Paul. Remember when he was bitten by a viper? I'm sure he just didn't go out and say, hey, bite me. You know, he, he uh, you know, was, was bitten by the snake. Well, calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of viper, basically, John was pointing out their hypocrisy, the religious hypocrisy. And like this desert viper, they appeared to be harmless. They appeared just like a stick. But when it comes to godliness, their form of it was, was deadly. You remember in Matthew 20, 3.13, Jesus pointed out, he says, You shut off the kingdom of heaven, talking to the Pharisees, from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They were responsible for keeping countless Jews out of the kingdom. From salvation, from spiritual life, because of their hypocrisy. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. And the question, when he says, who warned you to flee, it continues the idea of a snake. Back in that culture, sometimes the farmer would burn the stalks of the field, of the harvest. And obviously, when a field is burning, any creatures that are there, including vipers, are going to go into the hole or, or run or do something. They're not going to just lay there and get burned up. That's the illustration that he's using. See, and the implication here is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were expecting John's baptism to be some kind of insurance for them. They thought it was just kind of another way. Right? We'll go out here to this prophet and get baptized by him so we can identify with him. Just cover our bases. And John saw right through that. They thought somehow that that would give them protection from any judgment or wrath to come. Now, believers... Beloved, that's, that's a wonderful truth for us who have put their faith or trust in Christ. Because true repentance, true conversion does protect us from God's wrath and His judgment that one day will fall. But this was anything from true repentance. It was a superficial, it was insincere professions, acts of faith that weren't genuine. It was hypocritic. It was, it was a sham. And Satan was behind all of it. And John wanted to point that out in no uncertain terms. And so he calls them a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says basically to them in verse 8, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, the marks of a truly repentant heart are that which is keeping with repentance. Fruit which is keeping with repentance. Remember in Acts 26.20, Paul described to King Agrippa deeds appropriate to repentance. 
We talked about last week how it's not good enough just to feel sorry for your sin. That doesn't do it. And over in, in Luke we read just a couple minutes ago, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. And same with the food. The tax gatherers, he says, hey, just collect what you're supposed to. Don't line your pockets. To those in the government, he says, don't take money by force or, you know, accuse people falsely. In other words, start doing things right. That's what he's saying. And any true repentance brings along that kind of fruit. You, be, you see it in someone's life. James 2.17 says, faith, if it has no works, is what? Is dead. So there's such a thing as having faith, but it's a dead faith. So many times I run into people who, just by their lives and by their profession, what comes out of their lips, you can kind of say, this person is probably not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They probably haven't committed themselves to his lordship and, and turned from their, their sinful ways yet. But when they find out you're in ministry or you're a Christian or whatever, oh, oh yeah, you know, I have faith. They'll tell you, keep the faith, you know. Well, what faith are they keeping? In 1 John chapter 3, it says, The one who practices righteousness is righteous. I mean, this is kind of a no-brainer, but we have to point it out. Just as he is righteous. Who? Christ. So, if you're claiming to have repented, have changed your mind, changed your direction, and now you're embracing Christ and you're saying, Yes, I'm a Christian. Well, then we should see fruits in keeping with that repentance. There should be some evidence of that in your life. Because if you're just saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's no work, there's no fruit in your life, you might stop and say, what's going on here? Be like planting an orange tree in your backyard. And there's no oranges ever on this tree. You would begin to question yourself, well, is this thing an orange tree? How do I know if it's an orange tree or not? They said it was. It looks like an orange tree, but there's no oranges coming out. It'd be useless. That's why you bought the tree. We have to have works that go along with our faith. Not works to earn our faith. These fruit, these works are just an outflow of Christ working in our life. In 1 John 4.20, John says this, If someone says, I love God and hate my brother... He's a liar. <laughs> For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. First John's a wonderful book to go through if you're struggling with your faith. If you're wondering at all, am I a Christian or not? Have I committed to my, my life to Christ or not? Read through the book of First John. Ask God to show you. If you're looking at your life and you nothing's changed, other than maybe you come to church. That doesn't make you a Christian. Do you understand that? Coming to church does not make you a Christian. You, know, you can go watch the 49ers all day long, but that doesn't make you a 49er. Alright? It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with, with, with Christianity either. You can't just come here and somehow feel that, well, I go to church, so somehow that makes me you know, a better person in the sight of God. If you're believing that, you're terribly mistaken. <laughs> the reason I'm here every Sunday is because I know what a sinner I am. 
that I need the grace of God daily, moment by moment. And I know that without His grace and mercy in my life, I would be lost and on a fast ticket to hell to face everlasting torment. <laughs> True repentance should be and should have corresponding genuine works that go along with it. And they're demonstrated in both an attitude change and also in action. See, those who claim to know Christ, those who claim to be born again, we will demonstrate a new way of living. Why is that? Because we've been transformed. That's why it's called being born again. You're, you're born anew. You're born from above. It's a brand new start. Paul says, old things have passed away. Behold what? All things have become new. The ancient rabbi said this of repentance, Great is repentance, for it brings healing upon the world. Great is repentance, for it reaches to the throne of God. A man can shoot an arrow for a few furlongs, but repentance reaches to the throne of God. When we repent, when we come before a holy God and we realize we're not holy, and we want to change direction, we want to change our eyes, and we surrender everything to Him, that's what repent, repentance involves. It re involves a changed life. It, re it involves renouncing sin and doing righteousness. It's a change of direction. And he tells us that we need to have that if we're going to truly believe in him. There's three things, basically, that when we look at repentance that we can talk about. First of all, it involves an understanding, an insight. It involves some kind of intellectual awareness of a need for some change morally and spiritually in your life. You have to have that. You don't just wake up one morning feeling great about yourself and say, hey, I'm going to repent today. Why would you repent if you think everything's okay? See, that's why sometimes when we share the gospel with somebody, we're, we're quick to get to all the sugar-coated stuff. God has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you more than anything. And all this stuff. And I'm not saying you can't share that information with them because it may be true. But for people to embrace the gospel, they first have to understand that they have a need for the gospel. If you have a disease that's going to kill you in two weeks and you don't know about it, hey, you don't care. If you go to the doctor and they say, you know what, you got this disease in two weeks unless we do something, you know, something's got to change because you're going to die. If that's the case, what are you going to do? You're going to research. You're going to try to do everything you can and pray that the doctors can do everything you can, the Lord does it, so that your life can continue. But you needed that understanding first. You had to be diagnosed. A lot of times we don't get, give people a chance to be diagnosed in their own mind when they come to Christ. We just want to usher them right into the kingdom of heaven. Pray this little prayer. Embrace Jesus. He loves you. You know, just, just confess your sins and it's all over. It's so much more than that. And yet it's so simple that a child could come to Christ. But it involves some form of understanding 
that we're not at the moral place we should be. We're not at the spiritual place we should be. And we're ready for change. Secondly, it involves our emotions. I don't want to make this purely an intellectual thing. Repentance involves our emotions. When we come to Christ, I remember Pastor, uh, not Westgate, but Pastor Dan Raffle sharing with me on a Wednesday night over and over. Steve, Paul says in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he must have shared it with me 15 times before God quickened my mind to understand that, in, that included me. Up to that point, I'm thinking, yeah, 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 that's my brother, you know, recovering alcoholic. That's my other brother, you know, he had to get married. Well, that's, the, you know, everybody else, but not me. I'm an altar boy. What are you thinking? You know, I'm not as bad as the rest of my family. And he had to point it out over and over. And finally, I realized, you know what? The standard is God. And who am I to think that I'm holy? I'm not holy. I have faults. I sin like everybody else. And I had to diagnose myself as saying, you know what? There's no hope for me outside of Christ. I need to believe in a Savior. I need a Savior. And I remember when I prayed and committed my life to Christ, there was an emotion that came over me. It wasn't something that forced me down on my knees and weep like a little baby. I, I'm not that emotional of a guy. But I remember in my heart going to bed that night realizing that, man, my sins have been forgiven. The weight is gone. The burden's gone. It touched my emotions. That's what repentance does. And thirdly, it involves action. It involves appropriate actions that result from what our mind knows and our heart feels. See, recognition of personal sin, that's the first step. And it's an important one. But you know what? By itself, that doesn't save anybody. If you just sit there and say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I know it. Well, so what? The Bible says we're all sinners. Sometimes that's even dangerous to go there. Because somehow it allows people to feel that, well, they, they recognize their sin and that's good enough. They've admitted that they're a sinner. That's good enough. Well, you know, you can be an alcoholic and say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. But until you get some help, you're going to have problems. You're going to struggle. Just saying those words doesn't do anything. You remember Pharaoh in Exodus 9.27, he admitted his sin. Balaam in, number, in, in Numbers 22.34, he admitted his sin. In Joshua 7.20, even Achan acknowledged his sin. And even insincere Saul in 1 Samuel 15.24 confessed his sin. The New Testament, remember in Luke 18, the rich young ruler who asked Jesus how to have eternal life. Says he went away, what? Sorrowful. Felt sorry. But he wasn't repentant. He was sorry. Sorry, beloved, doesn't cut it. Even Judas, in Matthew 27, 4, when he was kind of in despair over betraying Jesus, he said to the chief priests and the, and the elders of the day, he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. See, what's key about all those men, they all recognized their sin, didn't they? Yet not one of them repented. The Scripture doesn't tell us so. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that we can experience the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world. And what does that produce? It produces death. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. Instead of godly sorrow that produces true repentance. See, it's not good enough just to say you're sorry. True repentance will include deep feelings of wrongdoing and sin against God. But you know what? It's so much more than that. There has to be fruit along with that repentance. The Bible says that. If it's a genuine change, if it's a genuine transformation, you're going to see a change in somebody's life. You know, when I came to Christ, I mean, I was home on spring break. I went right back out to IUP and, and just got right back into the, the same atmosphere I was in before. The same environment. You know, before I went home, I used to, you know, go out and drink a little bit, do this stuff, you know, that stuff. In comparison, I thought I was a pretty good kid, and I was. Compared to what some of the stuff was going on there, it just blew my mind. I was kind of naive in a lot of ways, but I just looked at that as God's gracious hand of protection upon me. But I remember when I went back out after spring break, I had changed. Truly, I had changed. I had nobody there Sunday morning saying, hey, you have to get up and go to church. I mean, I was raised in Catholic church, so every Sunday, pretty much, I'd go to church. But you know one thing? I was thinking about this the other day. When I went to college, I didn't go to church on Sundays. As a Catholic, I just didn't go. I don't know why, but I didn't. I didn't feel the need to. It wasn't like I turned my back on the church, but I went home. You know, Sunday you went to church. But if I stayed the weekend out of school, I wouldn't go to church. But I remember coming back from spring break and all of a sudden, man, Sunday morning, I'm finding myself at church. I get the phone book out. I'm like, I, I don't even know what to look for. I had no idea. I remember finding this little Baptist church down the street from ours. And I look back on it now and they were very legalistic. <laughs> but that's all, I, that's all they knew, I guess. But they taught the word. And I remember walking in there <clears throat> first Sunday, meeting the pastor. He was kind of a different kind of guy. Kind of different looking and stuff. And I thought, well, whatever, I'm here. And I remember sitting kind of in the middle of the back back there and him opening the Bible and I had my Schofield reference Bible and I'm opening it and I'm trying to figure out where he's at and trying to learn and grow. And I remember the second Sunday I came, or actually it was a Wednesday night, that went, they said they had a Bible study Wednesday night. I was there. It was just a matter of fact. It wasn't like somebody needed to nudge me because I, I thought I had to grow. I remember coming Wednesday night and sitting with this little group of people and, and having a, they had a Bible study going on. Feeling so awkward about them praying and me not praying in their little group and all that. You know, I wasn't ready for all that. But I went back and I went back the next Sunday. And I remember seeing this little elderly lady at the, the, the back of the church as I walked in. Usually get places early when I go. She was sitting there at a table. And she had all these bulletins there. She was folding them. You know, and I was there maybe 20 minutes early and not, nobody was in the church yet. I looked at her and said, you need some help? Oh, I'd love some help. Here. She showed me how to do it and just sat down and started helping her. Pretty soon I'm standing next to this lady greeting people. And saying, I you know, it was my second Sunday in the church. I didn't know any better, I guess. I don't know. You know, people were walking out like, oh, hi, you know, my name's Steve. Who are you? You know, <laughs> they just didn't know who I was. But God had changed my life. I was a very shy person. But you know what? God somehow changed me. And that's part of repentance. 
If I was the same person I was before, that would not, there would not be any fruit in my life. And you have to stop sometimes and you have to ask yourself, do I see fruit in my life as a believer? Is there ongoing fruit? Is there something happening? Year to year, month to month, week to week. Or is it the same old, same old? I go to church, hear a sermon, go home, you know. Hopefully there's some something alive in you. I just, I find it hard today to believe, even in our culture, I know we're busy people, but you know, it's kind of like going to church has becomes this task that we have to do. And even those of you who are serving in ministry, be careful because even ministry becomes a task that you have to do or you think that's expected of you. Don't, don't let that happen. Don't let the enemy steal the joy that you first had when you, when you first repented, when you first came to Christ. Do you remember how it was? Remember how excited you were when somebody opened the Word of God and began to read and explain? Man, you couldn't get enough. I remember looking through the Bible and finding things in the Old Testament. It's like, well, wait a minute, even in creation, thinking, wait a minute, I just read this. I think I found a contradiction. And then getting all this stuff and going to pastors and saying, you know, I just read this in Genesis 2. Now I'm reading it again. I think somebody made a mistake here. Purely naive. I didn't know any better. But there was an excitement there. Don't let the enemy take that away. And look at what he says here to them. He says... I say to you, or he says, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't just think because you were raised in church or, you know, you, your parents are Christian or whatever. In our, in our vernacular today, you know, we don't, Christianity is, isn't something that's transferred from mommy and daddy to junior or to little missy. It just doesn't work that way. Hopefully there's a realm of influence there. And you want to provide a godly home and raise your children up in the way that the Lord wants you to. But that doesn't make them automatically Christians. And it's almost these Pharisees of the day, these religious leaders, the Sadducees, were coming to him and they were saying, you know, well, we have Abraham as our father. What do we need this stuff for? We don't truly need to repent. And look at what he says to them. He says even God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. In other words, don't think you're more than what you are. And in verse 10, he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. What's he talking about? Back then, in the culture, they would have a grove of trees. And the harvest would come, and they would mark certain ones. If they didn't produce fruit, why are they going to keep growing them, right? So they would mark certain ones. And after the harvest, the, the uh, farmer would come back, the harvesters would come back, and they'd take an axe, and they'd, they'd lay it at the root of the trees. Take it out. They plant a new tree there that hopefully was going to be fruit-bearing. But it says, Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You say, well, does that mean Christians? You mean our Christians going to suffer? No. He's talking about people that don't produce fruit. Well, who are people that don't produce fruit? Those who don't have any life in them. Those who are lifeless. Those who are dead spiritually. That's why it's such a, a true statement when you say being a Christian and producing fruit should be one and the same. It has to be. Now, yeah, we go through dry spells now and then, but there has to be some form of life there. 
If there's not, then there's no transformation, then there's no salvation. Just because their father was Abraham, that didn't give him a free pass to heaven. Just because you were raised in a Christian home, that doesn't give you a free pass to heaven. Hopefully young people here today see God changing you. See God transforming you into the person that He wants you to be. Hopefully you understand your need to turn from your sin and embrace the Savior. If you haven't come to that point, then you're still here in this group of folks that are going to be not producing fruit, and they're going to be cut down and they're going to be thrown into the fire. You know, that's one thing that we don't hear a lot about today. We don't hear a lot about fire. We don't hear a lot about hell. John 15, 16 says this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. See, fruitless repentance is worthless. It's useless. It means absolutely nothing to God. For you to come and be sorry for your sin or to just say a prayer, or whatever, if you don't see the fruit of God in your life that He promises to produce, something's wrong. Spiritually, there's something wrong. And you're still on the fast track to God's judgment. Fire is basically a symbol of divine punishment, of torment in judgment. You remember back in, in, in Genesis 19, because of their wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And even in Numbers, when Korah and all his men and their households were, were swallowed up by the earth, they went down alive to Sheol. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense with improper motives. Every tree that does not bear good fruit. Those who refuse to turn to God for forgiveness. God is there, beloved. He's saying, come to me. Come to me and forsake your sin. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn to the Savior. Embrace my Son. He's done everything that needs to be done for you. You just have to take a hold of it. You just have to reach out by faith and say, you know what? What the Word of God says is true. I am a sinner. I do need the grace of God. And God, help me to, to believe in you. Help me to understand what this person is saying here this morning. Because if you're refusing to turn to God, if you're refusing to turn to God for forgiveness and for salvation, you're not going to have any evidence. You're not going to have any good fruit. You're not going to have genuine repentance. Think of this in closing. In closing salvation is not verified by some past act in your life. It's not verified by, oh, on that Wednesday night, Steve, when you prayed that prayer, just keep on holding on to that. Just keep on believing, even though you don't see God working in your life at all. You know, I prayed that prayer back on March 18th, 1979, and, and, that's, and I'm a Christian because I know I prayed that prayer. That's not what it's based on. Salvation is not based on that. When I get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to say, did you pray that prayer? That's not going to be His question to me. Salvation is verified by present-day fruitfulness in our lives. Every day. We should see God doing a work in our lives as we yield to the Holy Spirit and He produces the fruit of the Spirit 
in our lives. That's what it's about. It's not about acting a certain way. It's not about trying to be a certain way or being religious or being holy, all that stuff. That's something God does for us. He makes us holy, even though we're not. He sets us apart unto himself, the Bible says, by his grace, by his mercy. why John was so humble when he's delivering this message. He says, you know what? It's not about me. There's one coming after me that I'm not even able to be his slave. I'm not even able to stoop down and tie his sandal. He was in awe of the Savior. And so we should be. I pray this morning that you've made that commitment to Christ. I pray this morning that you've embraced Jesus, that you've repented of your sin. And you see the fruits of repentance in your life. You see God taking you from A to B, C to D, right down the line. Your life's not the same anymore because you've met the Savior. Anybody who met Jesus in the Bible, not all of them were saved, but their life was never the same. They always went away, either sorrowful or changed in some way. You being here this morning, I pray by the power of God through His Word and through His Holy Spirit, you won't go away unchanged. Pray that you embrace the message that God has for you. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that Your work is continuing in our hearts. Lord, that we don't have to hold on to some past event in our lives to make sure that we're a Christian. Lord, that You're continuing to work each and every day. That You're producing the fruit that You promised to produce. And Lord, if the fruit's not there, then we need to go back to square one. We need to go back to the basics. We need to go back to You're God, we're not. You're holy, we're not. We need to go back, come to terms with the fact that we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. That's why He gave His life on a cross and a very cruel death. But He did it in a way that was sacrificial so that we could embrace all that He bore. He bore our sin personally. It wasn't just, yeah, yeah, I'm going to the cross today to die for the sins of the world. No, He went to the cross to die for the sins of Ken. He went to the cross to die for the sins of John. He went to the cross to die for the sins of Hassan and Steve and Mbika and Lois. He went to the cross to die for the sins of each one of us. And he begs us, he pleads with us to put our faith, our trust in his grace, in his mercy. Turn to him for salvation. Believers, don't ever lose sight of that message. It's a hope-filled message. It's a life-giving message. I pray that we'd be diligent in sharing it with those who've yet to hear the gospel, who've yet to have their life transformed by the power of the Spirit. Father, we do pray for Kayla Ott as she goes back to, to school tomorrow. I know she's traveling all the way back to Florida. Lord, we pray for her and her family. And know it'll be a transition for her, but Lord, we know that you have her there for a purpose. I pray that she would live up to that purpose, that you continue to do that work in her heart. Lord, protect her, lead her, and guide her. Bring her back safely to us this summer. 
Father, we just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.